Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies, and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Welcome to A Beautiful Resistance. Uh, my name is Paul Joslin, and I'm the teaching pastor here. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, we are really excited to kick off this new series, A Beautiful Resistance, where we're going to be preaching through the last several chapters of the book of Romans, Romans 12 through 16. And in our small group format, we're going to be reading through a book called The Beautiful Resistance by a pastor named John Tyson. And if you've heard anything about this small group series as it's launching off over these next eight weeks, is that at the core of the book study and this last few chapters of Romans, it's essentially answering the same question. How are the people of God supposed to live? As followers of Jesus, how are we called to engage with the world and follow the way of Jesus? Now, I don't know if you know this, but actually, originally, Christians, the people who followed Jesus, were called people of the way. They weren't actually called Christians. In fact, Christians was a derogatory name that was given to people who followed Jesus. Outsiders would look at them and be like, those are the crazy people who follow that Christ. Let's call them Christians. But the followers of Jesus, they referred to themselves for, for many of the first years of following Jesus after he was resurrected as people of the way. People who follow the way of Jesus. Because at their core, this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-economical society that they formed was centered around one thing. Allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his way of living. At our core as followers of Jesus, that's what it's always been about, following the way of Jesus. Now, we know that it's not that simple, right? I mean, it's simple to say, oh yeah, we're the people who follow the way of Jesus, but the reality is the world offers a lot of different ways to follow. There are so many different ways and, and alternatives to the way of Jesus that offer up a place of happiness and that tell us if we follow that way of living, we'll actually have the happiness and the spirituality and the divine that we're looking for. In fact, John Tyson, he says it this way, we are living in a multicultural, postmodern, pluralistic society filled with competing worldviews, diverse religions, self-defined moral systems, and individually created identities. There exists a variety of ways to live that are constantly offered to us. Ways to find life, happiness, identity, community, purpose, and the strength to live our best life. And that's not the only challenge. It's not just that there are a lot of ways that we could choose to live. But sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, there's, 
ways that, that seem to kind of partially align with the way of Jesus. And so it can kind of get muddled in our minds. Is this the way of Jesus or is this the way of the world? And, and that it feels kind of like the way of Jesus, but it feels like it's a little off. I mean, just look at politics. Both political parties would have you believe that if you vote for them, you are following the way of Jesus. I mean, is, is following Jesus about morality or is it about freedom from morality? There's so many ways that the people of God are, are, are pressured to live and to conform to society, and, and oftentimes it's muddled with the way of Jesus. But sometimes, let's also be honest, it's a little clearer than that, isn't it? I mean, there are sometimes we very clearly know, okay, this is the way of the world, and this is the way of Jesus, but we still feel torn, and we feel attention, and the desires of our hearts and our, the longings of our mind that I, I really... This just feels better. This is just easier. I would rather follow the way of the world in this moment. And so we live in this tension between knowing as the people of God, we're supposed to follow the way of Jesus, but being, feeling this pressure to follow the way of the world. And we should pay attention to that tension. When we begin to feel that pull and that tug, it's kind of like a check engine light coming on in our car. Whenever that check engine light comes on, we have to figure out, we have to diagnose the problem to make sure that the check engine light of our soul, we know what's going on. The problem is we don't often take it in for a diagnosis to fix the problem. The problem is we often try to find new disciplines that we think will help solve the problem. So say, okay, if I'm feeling this tension between the way of Jesus and the way of the world, then I just need to read my Bible more and then I'll be, I'll be able to follow the way of Jesus. Or if I'm feeling this tension, I just need to pray more. I need to go to church more. And if I do those things, then I will fall into the way of Jesus. The problem with that is that it's a little bit like your check engine light coming on your car, taking it into the mechanic and saying like, hey, I need to, I need to get my car checked out. And the mechanic says, hey, what's going on? What can we do? He's like, well, my check engine light's on. Okay, we'll take a look at it. No, I don't, I don't want you to take a look at it. I just want to get a lift kit for my car. I think that'd be sweet. I want to get my windows tinted and a new radio. And the guy's looking at you like, you, your car might not stay on the road. You want to do what? You see, when, when our, our check engine light is on, we don't just need new disciplines. We need a new orientation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's look at Romans 12, 1 through 2, where Paul begins this whole call of what the people of God are supposed to be. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, if you've been in church for, for any amount of time, you probably have heard this said before, that if you see a therefore in Scripture, you what? Ask what it's there for. Perfect. Saturday night didn't get that, so you guys are already doing better. I know everyone at home got it too. Okay, so you ask what it's there for. What is it there for? Paul is tying this passage, this next Several chapters of Romans, 12 through 16, to everything that has preceded it. Romans 1 through 11, Paul has been preaching a sermon to this church about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. He's been telling them the story of God's mercy. And he says that everything I'm about to tell you, all of the ways the people of God are supposed to live, all of the ways that we're supposed to follow are all rooted and based in our relationship with God that is based on the story of God's mercy. 
And so in chapters 1 through 11, he unpacks again and again and again the story of God's mercy, the way that God has stepped into human history, that when we rebelled against God and we chose to define goodness for ourselves, that God was not passive, that he took action, that he stepped in and sent his son who died for us, redeemed us through the power of his death and resurrection so that the people of God can form this new community following the way of Jesus. It's all rooted in God's mercy. Everything that we are and everything that we are called to be is rooted in the mercy of God. And so as Paul begins this argument of how the people of God are supposed to live, he says, because of everything that God has done. It's just what Justin was talking about earlier in Romans 8 where it says that we were enslaved to sin and yet God has adopted us as sons and daughters through the power of Jesus. Later in Romans 8, Paul says that that there is nothing in this world or out of this world. There are not angels nor demons. There are not actions we can do or there's nothing in our past or in our present or our future that can separate us from the love and mercy of Jesus. And that is the foundation of our relationship. And so if we want to live out who the people of God are called to be, we have to remember what God has done. We have to remember God's mercy. We are a people whose story is a story of God's mercy. But if you're like me, and I guess is that most of you are like me, most days we struggle to understand God's mercy. Actually, a better way of saying it is we may understand God's mercy, but we struggle to believe that God is actually merciful. And when we think of God and we think of God specifically looking at us, we think, pretty sure God just tolerates me. And when God looks at us, he's more disappointed and frustrated by who we are than excited. We have this vision of God that he's looking down on us from above and and kind of just has his eyebrows raised going, really? Again? Again? You see, we can hear that God is merciful, but but we believe it's a mercy infused with disappointment. We can hear that God dispenses mercy, but it's a mercy that he gives begrudgingly because we know ourselves. We know our hearts. And yet what Paul is saying is that in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done, that is the foundation of our relationship with him. It's all based on this mercy of God. And you've probably heard this before, but mercy is based on nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing, it is God freely giving of himself in ways that don't make sense to us, in ways that we could never earn. God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it is core, it is central to his being. In fact, when God reveals himself for the first time to the people of God, when he meets with Moses and he's about to tell them, this is who you're supposed to be and give them the Ten Commandments, the first word God says about himself is that he is gracious and merciful. He's saying, this is the foundation of our covenant, of our relationship. I am merciful. It's core to who he is and core to how he wants us to understand him. Paul in Ephesians 2, 4 says that God is rich in mercy. 
rich in mercy, rich like Jeff Bezos rich. I don't know if you know how rich Jeff Bezos is, but Jeff Bezos could spend $215 million a day and never run out of money. $215 million a day and never run out of money. That is stupid rich. God is rich like that. God's mercy is richer than that. This isn't how it works, but let's say that it is. Let's say that you sinned 215 million times a day. That's a lot of sin. And I, I, I think we could all agree, as sinful as we all are, hopefully none of us is sinning 215 million times a day. I don't even want to do the math on what that would be per second per sin. But let's say that that's how we lived our lives. God's mercy would still not run out. God's mercy would still never run out on you. You could sin 215 million times a day and God's mercy would still be rich enough to cover over those sins, to dispense that mercy on you and to make you whole. That is God's mercy. And we feel stuck about the sin in our lives. Is God's mercy enough? And God wants us to know that is the basis of our relationship and he is rich in mercy and he gives his mercy to sinners. And so when he calls us to be the people of God, to live in certain ways. It's with the awareness that we will fail. And though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And so we remember what God has done for us. We remember God's mercy. But Paul says that's not, that's not the only thing that characterizes this relationship. He also says that we are a people who are supposed to be transformed. This is what he says in Romans 12 and 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I will be honest with you. I've heard a number of sermons preached on this, and I don't know if it was just my upbringing or where I came from, but I, I had a very real misunderstanding of what this passage was talking about. And it shocked me this week to find out that this verse, to be conformed or be transformed, is what's called a passive imperative. Now, you may not care at all what a Greek passive imperative is, but it basically means this. Transformation is not something you do, but something that happens to you. It's not something you can achieve on your own. It's not a list of things you're supposed to follow in order to be transformed into the way of Christ. It is something that God promises he will do to us. That we are either conformed to the pattern of this world, or we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. One of those two things is constantly happening to us, constantly. And, and what I've always heard and what I've always read into this passage is, is an active imperative. And so I see be transformed and I immediately think, okay, what are the things that I need to do in order to achieve transformation? What are the things that I need to check the box on to make sure that I am being formed into the way of Jesus? And it messes with our paradigms of transformation. It's where many of our paradigms for transformation look something like this. And you may have seen me use this illustration before, but, but we believe transformation looks this way. That over time, the more we devote ourselves to these different spiritual practices, this different way of being, the more transformation will take place in our life. And it happens at a steady pace. And we think that if we can just read our Bible enough or go to church enough or pray enough or do certain things enough, then we will be transformed more into the likeness of Jesus. We resort to, to a form of legalism where we think we can 
earn God's gift of transformation. Now, I'm not saying that, that reading your Bible and coming to church and praying don't have their place. They do. They're, they're proper and good things for the people of God to do. But that's not what Paul is getting at in this passage. He is not saying that transformation comes about through a form of legalism. He's saying transformation happens to us. And the problem with legalism is that every time we fall into that, we will always fail. We suppress our desires and, and our sin, and it ends up leaking out in other ways. Because what we don't need is not more rules to follow, but a transformation, a reorientation of our hearts. And some of us, we get so frustrated by this way of being that, that, that we think Christianity is so about just making sure you were a bad person and you become a better person that we, in some ways we give up. And we just kind of re revert back to hedonism where we'll just pursue the desires of our heart. And so transformation looks like this. We, we've kind of been being transformed, but we can't really do it. And so we just get stuck in sin, which is a side, we'll, we'll pursue the passions of our flesh. We'll pursue the passions of our heart and we'll just live for pleasure and, and hopefully God can forgive us. It's too hard to follow all these rules and regulations and all these things that we think we're supposed to do in order to be transformed. But that doesn't work either. It never does. All these things that we pursue and give ourselves to, they end up leaving us more fragmented, not more whole. And so then when it doesn't work, we just call out to God and say, God, fix me, fix this, take away my anger, take away my lust, take away my gossip, just make me transformed. And we think transformation looks like this. You'll suddenly just arrive. And just all of a sudden, all of your problems will be fixed and God will transform you and you will be a fully formed follower of Jesus. And that's not how transformation works either. You see, what Paul is saying is that transformation, this mercy of God, is not something we can achieve for ourselves, but something God does for us, to us. You see, I don't know if you, you noticed, but, but we are so immersed in our cultural setting that even our religion can be conformed to the pattern of this world. Even when we think we're trying to pursue Jesus, we still fall into the way the world operates. Because the world tells you you can't be given anything for free. You have to earn it. One theologian, he puts it this way. He says, Western culture today is so powerful and alluring that it often just swallows us whole. Its beauty and power and promise generally take our breath away and our perspective. The lure of present salvation, money, sex, creativity, the good life, has for the most part entertained, amused, distracted, and numbed us into a state where we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture and its short-range soteriology. What he's saying is that we eventually, we become conformed to the patterns of this world where we believe their story of salvation. That these certain things that the world offers, this certain way of being, this certain way of even following God that the world says we have to do will ultimately lead to our salvation. And it results in us giving ourselves to these things over and over and over again and not actually experiencing the transformation that we long for. And so this idea that the transformation happens not by things that we do, but who we are with. 
So what Paul is calling the people of God to do is to remain in Christ. See, the question about transformation is not what are you doing to be transformed, but it is who are you allowing around you that is forming you? Not what are you doing, but what is forming you? It's a key difference. And so ways that you could ask yourself this question is, are you being formed by the culture or by the church? Are you allowing yourself to be formed by social media influencers or the influence of the Holy Spirit? Are you allowing yourself to be formed by cable news or by the word of God? You see, what Paul is saying is that where we place ourselves, our orientation, the the posture we have before the world or before Jesus is what transforms us. One will happen or the other. And the people of God are supposed to be the people who are transformed into the likeness of Christ, renewed with his mind, that we become people who think like God, operate like God, act like God because of the transformational work he has done in our lives. And so the question is not what are you doing, but what are you being formed by? We have to take an audit of our souls. What voices are we allowing to speak into ourselves? What places are we posturing ourselves before and and, and allowing those things to form us? Because I guarantee you, if you posture yourself before late night cable news television, you will be formed to the pattern of their thinking. Don't care if it's Fox or MSNBC. You will be formed to the pattern of this world and not transformed into the pattern of Christ. What do we allow to speak into our lives to transform us? Think of the voices in your life that you listen to. Do we listen to them or do we remain in Christ? Now, when I say that, remain in Christ, the the obvious question is, well, what does that mean? It's not about reading your Bible, but I'm not supposed to listen to Tucker Carlson or or Rachel Maddow. Then then what does it mean to remain in Christ? If it's not about doing these certain disciplines, then how do I remain in Christ? What does that actually look like? There's one active imperative in this whole passage, in these two verses. And Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice before God, as your true and proper worship to him. He says, the thing you can do if you want to be transformed, if you want the transformation that Jesus promises, if you want the renewal of your mind that God is calling us to, the thing you can do is lay your life down as a living sacrifice before the throne of God, as a true and proper act of worship. What the heck is a living sacrifice? If you have ever watched any sort of movie or television show where there's a sacrifice, they end up dead. What is a living sacrifice? It is a continual posturing of ourselves, of laying ourselves down, sacrificing our whole selves before God. It is giving up our desires for God's desires. It is a posture of allowing ourselves to die. When we lay ourselves down before the throne of God as a living sacrifice, we are giving up me. 
my desires, my way of thinking, my way of doing things, my way of operating in the world is laid down before God as an act of worship. But we struggle with that. I don't know about you, but there are times that I I try to offer myself fully to God and there are times where I feel conflicted with the way of the world. God is asking for devoted hearts, but oftentimes I have a divided heart. And there are parts of myself that I offer to God and I say, God, you can have this, this, you can have this. And then I think of these other places within me that I, nope, God, you can't have that yet. That's still mine. I'm not ready to go there with you. We live in this place with divided hearts where we give ourselves up as a living sacrifice and then we get off the altar and we offer ourselves to the things of this world. And so the truth is that our transformation often looks much more like this. Right? There are moments where we give ourselves to God and there are moments where we give ourselves to this world. There are moments that we seek transformation and there are moments we are conformed to the pattern of this world. There are moments we offer ourselves wholly to God and there are moments where we say, no, I will give myself wholly to this idol. Because ultimately that's what this conversation is about. This orientation of ourselves before God, it's a conversation about worship. It's a conversation about what we have placed at the center of who we are. What we have placed at the core of our being, what we have given our allegiance to. Do we worship Jesus and him alone or have we given ourselves, our hearts, our minds to the things of this world? What's fascinating to me is this is not the only time in Romans that Paul talks about offering ourselves as sacrifice. In Romans 6, he brings this idea up several times in Romans 6, 13, 16, and 19, where he says that we often offer ourselves to the wickedness of this world. We offer ourselves to the way of being in this world. We offer ourselves to the idols of this world. And what he says about that action is that every single time those things will enslave us. Every single time we give ourselves to those things, we will be enslaved. And so our true and proper worship is not giving ourselves to those things, but to God, to resist idolatry and to worship God alone. It's a matter of orientation of who we have given our hearts to. What I find especially fascinating about this passage is that that word, true and proper worship, what Paul is saying is he uses a Greek word there, logikos, logical. He says the logical response to what God has done, the mercy that he has given, the logical response to everything God has done for us is for us to give ourselves fully and wholly to him, holding nothing back instead of giving ourselves to the idols of this world, to worship him alone. And the question I think we all wrestle with is, is that actually better? Is it better to give myself fully to Jesus or to these idols of this world, to resist idolatry and worship Jesus alone. See, there is a reason we chose the image for this beautiful resistance. This this is whole anchor of who this movement of the people of God is supposed to be, following the way of Jesus. We chose the image of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Because the way of Jesus is a king who did not come to be served, but who came to serve who did not come seeking power, but giving power away. Jesus who came and did not ask for us, 
to be enslaved to him, but offers to serve us. See, when we think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, of, of a king bowing down before sinners and traitors and deceivers who are about to give him over to his death, the humility it takes to wash those people's feet. That is the mercy of God. That is the mercy of God. So the beauty of this image, Paul is saying, if that is who Jesus is, if that is what his mercy is, if that is what he has done for us, why would you give yourself to anything else? Why would you give yourself to something that promises it will enslave you? Why would you give yourself to something that will lead to destruction when you could give yourself to Jesus who was destroyed for you? That is the way of Jesus. And that is where the conversation starts about who the people of God are. The people who have postured themselves before Jesus, resisting idolatry and choosing to worship him alone because he is the only logical person that we should give ourselves to. And so to close, I'd like for us to take a moment in prayer. It's a prayer we often do at Waterstone. It's a simple prayer. It's a Quaker prayer. It's a prayer of posturing. Where essentially it's this. We begin the prayer by, by laying our palms down, face down. You simply ask God, God, what am I holding on to? What do I want more than you? What am I worshiping? What in my life am I giving myself to? Where is my heart divided? And you have this posture of release of offering it to God. I would encourage you now to take a moment and say that prayer. Ask God to search you. What are you holding on to? What do you need to release? God does not just want our affiliation, but our allegiance. Hearts that are fully devoted to him. And he says that when we give ourselves to him as living sacrifices, that God will do the work of transformation in us. And so now I would invite you to, to turn your palms upward simply ask God, what do I need to receive from you? 
What transformation do you want to do in my life? Where do you want to renew my mind and make me whole? I'm yours.